trauma is very relative to the unique disposition of the person. So my trauma is relative to me and your trauma is relative to you. And that is because it's not so much about what's happening outside. So it's not about the, the person that we might say was traumatizing or the thing that we experienced that was traumatizing or the car accident or the event that happened. It's more about, well, it's not more about, it is about how our internal world shifted as a result to the external event. And to use like big fancy words, it's our neurobiology. So it's how our nervous system our physiology and our biology changed in response to the external thing out here or the person out there. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Rome from Home podcast. This is the podcast where we interview some of the world's most interesting, knowledgeable, and iconic explorers, athletes, scientists, and experts from the world of outdoor adventure and how they live lives of purpose. Purpose meaning how they cultivate their relationship with their environment, the earth, how they cultivate the community with others, and how they ultimately find inspiration and fulfillment in themselves. This is season two of the Rome from Home podcast, and we have some really exciting news. Adventure Activists has come on for this season to support us for the next 12 episodes with a very clear vision and a lineup that will be designed to promote action and ignite change for the better. And in particular, this season, we are with the founder of Adventure Activist, our co-host, Dr. Terry O'Connor. And with his help, we are going to be looking carefully at this concept of effective altruism and who is really doing the work that is leading to better outcomes in some of these causes. So we really want to provide you, dear listener, with the tools and resources to get out, get up off the couch, stand up and take a stance on social and environmental issues that are hindering our world from becoming a more just and beautiful place. Terry, he's a medical doctor and an ER doc. Terry was a climber and an adventurer, and that inspired him to get into medicine. And his work as an ER doc has inspired his work to be and to become the founder of Venture Activists, which is focused on the STD goals of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so with that, what's up, Terry? Hey, everybody. Terry here. Yeah, CJ. Uh, you know, I think we've joined forces here because we believe that those who are privileged to expand their horizons as travelers and explorers really do bear intimate witness to the threats to our world and are really uniquely positioned and motivated to serve in return. So we really want this season to be an educational space uh, for our listeners, which presents the foundational knowledge and tools for making positive change and we want to share our network of subject matter experts in really diverse areas of expertise, including health, education, philanthropy, peace, justice, conservation, climate, and more. Oh, we're excited to have you, Terry, and to, to team up with Adventure Activists and you. It's just amazing opportunity for us to really dive into some of this. And you and I are learning about this as we go. You're teaching me. Some of our guests are teaching us collectively. Uh, and in speaking of our other co-host, Corey Richards, who was my co-host throughout the entire first season, the first 24 episodes, he will also be joining us for a lot of these episodes. He's sort of in and out, depending on if he's in the Himalaya, if he's training, he has a busy life as a photographer, working photographer and athlete. And he brings an awesome perspective as someone who's also trying to figure this stuff out. I mean, you feel that in some of the episodes, Terry, you've noted that Corey's curiosity on this, I think is going to be really helpful for the audience. Oh, absolutely. He's had some great reflections uh, so far, but I really do enjoy learning from our guests and their process and figuring out how they want to best serve and give back uh, to the world. And, uh, you know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. So today uh, we have a very special objective and a very special episode for you. Corey and I will be speaking with psychotherapist Laurel Soleil about mental health and mental illness, how these things impact our society, and how we can better address them. Yeah. So, um, hi, everybody. It's Corey. I have really, before I went to Nepal this year, I started doing something, and it was really more of a turn of phrase. I, you know, I started this thing on my Instagram called Mental Health Mondays, and it was really a, an attempt to take on the questions that people have around mental health struggles, mental health issues, um, and speak to them from the perspective of somebody who's 
experienced a lot of them from, you know, major depression, clinical depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and PTSD to name a few. And, and rather than giving it a clinical voice, I wanted to give it a very personal voice. But as I've gone further down that rabbit hole, I realized that there's so much that I can't speak to as eloquently because I don't have the training. And so we thought uh, in light of Mental Health Awareness Month, it would be interesting to have somebody who can give language to that in a more concrete way. So um, Laurel Soleil has been my my therapist for eight years, and this is a no holds barred conversation um, about some of what I've been through um, and what Laurel and I have done together and the work we've done. Again, I want to make it relatable um, so that it's not just an abstract, but something that we can you know, really talk about on a personal level. So without further ado, I just want to say welcome, Laurel. Thank you so much for being here with us. This is a huge opportunity, and I hope the audience can really absorb uh, what we're about to go into. Thank you. It's great to be here, and I am excited about this conversation. It's an important conversation, not this month, but all months. So thank you for having me. Right. It's funny. It's uh, every day, every every week should be mental health awareness, you know, second. So the reason I started Mental Health Mondays and the goal behind sharing these experiences is to bring people into this conversation, as you just said, because so many more people suffer than we really know. And because of the stigmatized nature of the mental health conversation, oftentimes people feel silenced. And so they feel like they can't talk about it. And what I've learned is that through sharing my own experience, there's a wealth, a huge portion of the population that is dealing with this in sort of solitude and isolation. And so I guess what I want to do is start just by, can you, for people that don't know, and there's a great Neil Brennan joke about this. He's like, he said, if you don't know the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist, you're doing great. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but for people who don't know, can you just sort of briefly define psychologist, psychiatrist, psychotherapist, therapist, just so people know the difference? Yeah, absolutely. And I agree that if you don't know, you're doing great because all that really matters is that you're working with somebody that feels like a good fit for you. But anyway, the, the difference is really about education level. A psychiatrist has an MD, so they're a doctor via the MD route. And a psychologist is a doctor by virtue of a PsyD or, or a PhD. A psychotherapist has a master's level education and then they have completed their board exams and all of their supervised clinical hours. And then there's two forms of psychotherapists. You could be a, um, have gotten your master's in social work or in like a counseling degree. So you could be an LPC or an LCSW, licensed clinical social worker. So that's really the, the kind of basic differentiating aspects of those three. And it's, I want to point out to people that what Laurel said is, is so vitally important. And really what matters is that you're working with somebody that, that is working for you. And, and oftentimes psychiatrists generally deal with medication and drugs. You know, I, I see a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner to deal with my medication. And then I see Laurel to delve into the healing aspects of therapy. So oftentimes you need two. You don't always need to. And, and then the other thing that I want to say is you can have a PhD psychologist who's garbage and, and a, you know, and a clinical social worker who's amazing and vice versa. So there's no, there's no delineation. It's just, I just wanted to give people sort of a broad strokes. That's really true. And, and I think what we most commonly now understand in the field is you do go to a psychiatrist mostly for evaluation or assessment or diagnosis and then medication prescription. And then the, the psychologist for or psychotherapist for more long-term treatment seems to be the general working definition or understanding at this point when it comes to people needing support. So briefly, you know, I just want to give people a history here. When I came to Laurel eight years ago, I had, you know, I grew up with mental health struggles. Um, I was married at the time. I had been through a very traumatic avalanche experience on Gashburn 2 that triggered me into an episode of PTSD. And since that time, the work that Laurel and I have done together has, you know, I've been through a divorce. We've worked through the, the post-traumatic stress of the avalanche. We've worked through addiction, both on topics of, you know, alcoholism and sex and love. And, you know, most recently we've been really diving into inner child, uh, deep, you know, sort of um, 
trauma healing from a much, much deeper perspective. And that's work that I think is really informed by some of the work that you're doing with around uh, Gabor Mate's work. Can you explain what that work is? Yeah. So Gabor Mate is a Vancouver-based MD. Um, so never was actually in the field of mental health, but he became very embedded in the uh, addicts community with some pretty, pretty intense communities um, in Vancouver. And out of his work, people started to notice the way he was working with people. And out of his work, he and um, some other people created his approach, which is called Compassion Inquiry. And so for professionals, there is a 12 month long certification course that you can take and become certified to deliver his approach to treating trauma. And it really is a treatment of trauma. And he doesn't call it a methodology. He's very clear that it is an approach. And it's take the notion that to treat any pathology, any addiction, anything we experience under the umbrella of mental health, we have to go back to some of the earliest traumas, some of the earliest emotional disturbing memories, or sometimes we don't have memory for it. So it's just a feeling in our body. And we need to uncover what went on there. And generally what went on there is something occurred. And in response to what occurred, we developed a belief system about ourselves. It could be that I'm unlovable or I'm not seen. And in response to that belief system, again, could be a young child. A young child isn't going to have a conscious belief system of I'm unseen. It's going to be unconscious. But this then develops into a behavior, which we would call an unconscious driver or a belief system or a set of behaviors that we then kind of take with us. They travel with us in life. And at some point in our adulthood, things start to happen that don't feel great. Relationship issues, hairline triggers, alcohol use, job turmoil. We start to notice these patterns in our life. And so Gabor's work is all about the inquiry process, which is inquiring as to what may have happened very early on that could have established some of these ways of behavior and responses that we're having. And then the compassionate piece, because his approach is called compassionate inquiry, is that we're really treating ourselves and what occurred with deep compassion. So we're compassionately inquiring as to what happened in our life, but also what happened in the people's lives that we are involved with as well. So it's not a naming and shaming game. It's really a compassionate approach to uncovering the why in terms of what is leading to the current behavior. So that I think I think that's really helpful for people to to sort of understand that essentially the, the way I understand it is every behavior comes from wounding into or negative behavior. It's a coping mechanism. I mean, is that basically the, the basic premise? And then the, the, then we have mm -hmm. to approach it with a compassionate sort of openness to understanding it. Yes. And, it, you know, you, you could also say that every behavior that we do serves a function. So my anxiety, for example, or you know, somebody's fear-based thinking, that's going to have some kind of function that that serves. And so in order to understand the function, we have to go back and understand when that may have developed. Mm -hmm. And then it is to do that in not a shaming place, but in a, in a very compassionate understanding rather than a self-deprecating relationship to ourself because of the anxiety or because of the fear-based thinking, I hate myself, or I can't do this, or I, all these self-deprecating ways that we're in relationship to us. The idea is that we find out the compassionate response that we can have once we understand the origin of that behavior. So say somebody like me who had a really traumatic childhood. And again, it's not a blaming or shaming. It was just traumatic. And there was, there was violence and there was rage and there was um, abuse. And I don't, I don't hold any blame or anger towards where that came from. Um, but for somebody like me who experienced that, and it doesn't have to be those things, then am I more predisposed to have trauma responses later in life if I have not unraveled those early childhood experiences and the beliefs around them? Yes, is the short answer. And the longer answer, <laughs> the yes, longer answer <laughs> is that that's good. That's, that's really good information. It's good information to know that there's a reason why we're responding to situations in the way that we are, because then there's a pathway to understanding and a pathway to healing. That's one way to answer the question. 
So, I mean, can you just define trauma is just a, it's a buzzword right now and people are talking Mm -hmm. about it. And there's also, I think some trauma fatigue in some ways. Can you just briefly define what trauma actually means um, in broad strokes, but then also in more acute strokes? Yeah, I will do my best. And I think it's also important to know that talking to me, I'm going to have a definition of trauma, which is sort of my platform that I'm from. But there is a lot of different schools of thought out there. And there's a lot of different therapies out there. And for each school of thought and each therapy out there, there could be several definitions of trauma. So the one that I work from, and the one that Gabor kind of teaches from is that trauma is very relative to the unique disposition of the person. So my trauma is relative to me and your trauma is relative to you. And that is because it's not so much about what's happening outside. So it's not about the the person that we might say was traumatizing or the thing that we experienced that was traumatizing or the car accident or the event that happened. It's more about, well, it's not more about, it is about how our internal world shifted as a result to the external event. And to use like big fancy words, it's our neurobiology. So it's how our nervous system, our physiology and our biology changed in response to the external thing out here or the person out there. So that's why we say trauma is relative because what is traumatizing to me isn't necessarily traumatizing to you, Corey, or anybody else. It is because of how what shifts in me in response to what's out there. Okay. So that, that's such a good point because I think oftentimes when we think of PTSD, when we think of trauma, um, still there's a huge piece of the population, I think worldwide that that believes that trauma has to be combat related or, or rape, or, you know, these, these incredibly profound disruptive events. Right. And, and I think what you're saying and the way I understand it is that trauma can be um, much more subtle than that. It can be a car accident. It can be, it, it can be something that happens on the street as you're walking down the street and you don't even really understand it as trauma at the moment. Is that, am I, am I yeah. hitting that right? You are hitting that right. And and there's a way that we kind of language it, which is there's big T traumas and there's little T traumas. And again, this is very relative, but we can have a whole, like a little T trauma could be watching your child fall and bang your head and you need to take them to the emergency room because you're worried but as a result nothing everything's fine kids fine goes home completely fine however that could be a small t trauma it still is it still caused a dysregulation in your body so the next time your child's running down the street you might feel differently than all the other times before when your child was running down the street and hadn't fallen yet so that would be a small t trauma and and it's still a trauma then there's the big t you know, like getting caught in an avalanche, a near-death experience, a rape, childhood sexual abuse, a death of a spouse, death of a child. I mean, these are big T traumas, but there is, we can differentiate between the small T and the big T. And, and how did, like, what is the differentiation there? Is it just the severity of the event or like, how does that work? It's how disruptive that event plays out in our lives. So sort of like, to what degree then does that influence or affect our relationships, our work, our relationships, substances, our parenting, our marriages? To what degree does big T trauma or little T trauma shift other behaviors in our life? Okay. Yeah. Corey, I'd just like to highlight something here because I think it is such an important point about this relativity uh, of it because it's, I think it's a common misunderstanding that real traumas has to do to some large consequential huge event that objectively from the outside looking in looks so, so well traumatic. But an example of this, I, I mean, I can think of, I can think of many of examples people have worked with both in the climbing world, but also in the medical world. But I worked with a trauma nurse who um, worked many really catastrophic cases like young infants getting shot in gang warfare. And she was a rock. She was super solid. And one day um, we diagnosed a patient with uh, a lung cancer and she ran off sobbing and later came to me and said, that's how my dad died. And he looks a lot like my dad. And so on a scale of things you would think an emergency room trauma nurse would deal with, you would think seeing the toddler shot and die in gang warfare would be extremely traumatic. 
she handled that, just weathered that storm without a problem at all. And then this other trigger, which you think would be such a common occurrence in the emergency department, was so immensely traumatic for her, and she she had to leave her shift. And so having an awareness of the little things that can trigger someone, I think, is really important. And you don't know unless they share that with you. And you also won't know if they don't share with you going into a situation, what their margin is. I mean, how much trauma have they experienced? What did they go through in that day? How much sleep have they had? What else happened at home before this next little nudge? Um, mm -hmm. And I think just being compassionate to the people we're, we're working with or we're dealing with and knowing that that private story may be happening underneath the surface is, is super important. That's a good point. I, I, I think um, just to back up a little bit, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be disclosing here about, you know, sort of my trajectory. And one of the things that happened growing up, and I've talked about this openly, I talked about it in Outside Magazine. And, um, but for those people who haven't read it or are listening, you know, my mom suffered from really bad postpartum depression with my brother, who's two years older. And because of those insecure attachments that he developed and the belief systems that he developed, he found uh, incredibly effective and incredibly effective tool of getting his emotional needs met to exercise certain degrees of violence or rage towards towards me or other people. And again, this is this is not a, in any way a, a condemnation of his actions, because in so many ways, like Laurel said earlier, we have to look at the background of, of the people that are hurting, what's making them hurt. So in essence, he's just doing, he's, he's doing whatever he can to get his emotional needs met. Now, as we grow up, that doesn't necessarily excuse poor behavior because it needs to be addressed. However, the only reason I'm bringing this up is because then it, it trickled down to me, which is to say that I felt in my precognitive years and, and my young life, very unprotected which to Laurel's point created a story in my head, which was I basically, I don't matter. I have no value because if I, if I mattered, then I would be protected, right? By my primary caregivers. What they're seeing is, well, these are just two brothers growing up and going at it. They're just, you know, there's nothing there that they're seeing that is wrong. And yet what I'm experiencing is something entirely different. Uh, and that then predisposes me, if I'm not mistaken, Laurel, to, you know, when a traumatic event happens later on in life, because I've got this value deficit and because I've experienced this sort of rage and anger and violence, then when an avalanche, for example, happens and I have a near-death experience, boom, like everything clicks into motion and now I'm in a full full-blown PTSD episode. Is that accurate? Absolutely. As yeah. a trajectory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So I guess, I guess the thing that I'm, I'm curious about is then treating trauma for people who are curious, what are the most, or I guess, what, what kind of work do you do that helps treat people with trauma? Yeah. The work that I do is EMDR. So, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And that's a way of working with the brain where you are essentially using um, a tool to stimulate the brain bilaterally. So it, the brain is firing right hemisphere, left hemisphere, right hemisphere, left hemisphere, and you're, and you're activating the brain in a certain deliberate way while walking through a visual trauma memory if you have it, but more importantly, the body-based memory if you have it. And so that's one methodology that I use. And then obviously working to learn Gabor's approach, which is also very body-based and somatic. And then in addition to that, it's really, it's about holding a safe space for your client to be able to develop relationship with me or their therapist that feels strong enough to be able to say, all the personal details of what's coming up for them. You know, that could be in session or that could be out of session. If we don't have that safe space with our therapist, nothing's going to come up, right? It's just right. going right back to that misaligned attachment or those bonds of attachment that were broken or weren't formed at developmental, important developmental periods in our life. And so that's why the, it's not so much that you want to be attached to your therapist or your provider so much as you want to feel safe. So mm. of number one importance to me in treating trauma is that I'm cultivating the experience of safety for my clients. Okay. And that is a body-based feeling. I can't tell. That's not something I get to say, oh, now you feel safe, so we're all good. That's a client's experience. So that's where we're always checking in. How are you doing? What's coming up for you? 
you know, if you work with me, you'll hear me say, we'll use this terminology. What's the felt sense? What's the body sensation? If I was in your body right now, what would I be feeling? And a lot of what's coming up for you now. So what are you noticing right now? So that what what happens? Okay, there's two questions there because that's a lot of the work that Laurel and I do together is this sort of felt sense work where I'm describing something and 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 you'll stop me and you'll say what what's actually happening in your body, and I think it's it's so foreign when you start doing that work and it feels almost a little woo woo in a way where you're like what you know what's happening in your body and you're kind of like well what the fuck do you mean what's happening in my body am I you know like I'm pissed off or whatever you know and then, and and you have to really distill it like no what's happening in your body where do you feel quote pissed off and for me i can say that the most of my emotions i feel in my stomach that's where they live and so why is that so important to actually feel like the physical sensation of emotion what does that do why does that help us well, thoughts drive emotions so right so so if we're in this constant feedback loop of thought feeling thought feeling thought feeling we're just i mean from a biological perspective we're just in that stress response, we're driving up cortisol, we're driving up adrenaline, we're not actually getting anywhere. We're telling ourselves some pretty big stories based on the anxiety that maybe I in my chest momentarily that I didn't actually realize I was anxiety, but all of a sudden there's a story in my head and now I'm really freaked out and worried about something. And it's just this feedback loop that doesn't actually ever get us anywhere except further and deeper into the pools of cortisol and adrenaline, the stress hormones. So when we pause to experience the felt sense of emotion, we're doing a couple of things. We're slowing the whole process down, first of all. We're also really realizing that me feeling rejected, let's say, I feel rejected. Well, rejected isn't actually a feeling. Rejected is a story that I'm telling myself about a sensation I'm having in my body. So if rejection to me feels like a pit in my stomach, well then for my psychology to realize that, oh no, I'm just feeling a pit in my stomach. I don't have to tell myself a story about it. It doesn't have to be a reason why. I can actually cultivate the sense of safety with myself, allow myself to feel what I'm calling rejection is a feeling of a pit in my stomach. So we're allowing the parasympathetic nervous system to come online via the slowing down process. Our breath regulates, our blood flow becomes a little bit less intense, our heart rate might kind of come back down. So we're actually moving ourselves out of the sympathetic stress response and into the parasympathetic response. I, I guess it's, it's almost like you're, you're divorcing this is what I notice when I do this work. I notice that when I start feeling the physical sensation, it divorces me from the thought process. And the thought process is oftentimes what is so damaging to your point. It's stories. So uh, if we're going through a breakup, we're telling ourselves all sorts of stories about what's happening with the other person, right? I mean, heartbreak is one of the most profound pains that people feel. And, but when I drop into say my stomach, or where I'm feeling it, which is usually in my stomach, they, all of a sudden, all the stories go away. And it feels to me like I'm giving voice. I'm giving the attention to the emotional response versus the story. Is that kind of yeah. right? Yeah, you, you, you are. You're giving it space. Divorce is a good word. You're breaking away from the story. The story has nothing to do with actually the feeling. The feeling is just a feeling. The story is informed by all the stuff that's ever happened to you in the past and all the things you're afraid of happening to you in the future. But it's not actually about coming into the present with what's showing up right now. Is that, so is that there's, it seems like there's some correlation there between what happens in a, in a traumatic experience in that like trauma gets stored in the body. Very, very, like it's, and it's sort of the way I understand it and tell me if I'm wrong, it sort of it gets trapped in one side of the brain and spins, but it just spins out. And oftentimes when we have a traumatic event, people find themselves back in the same situation over and over and over again, sort of in an event, in an attempt to resolve what happened in a different way. Is that right? And, and is that why EMDR, that sort of where you're engaging the other side of the brain works? Yeah, so, so trauma really gets locked into the body. 
and and it gets locked into the body because it's an emotional experience and and the the connection between the body and the, the, the brain here is that it's the limbic system which is where trauma essentially the limbic system is like our emotional brain we have the prefrontal cortex which is right here behind behind the forehead right and then we have the which is sort of fully developed at age 25 and that's this rational what we might say like our adult brain but then we have the limbic system which was really our emotional brain and that is where trauma kind of the the emotional experience of trauma kind of gets stored you could say so which is then felt in the body at a triggering event so for example if you had like a vietnam vet and they they had been home from the war for some years and they went to watch a firework display with their grandchildren. And all of a sudden, the fireworks are going off and they are in full-blown flashback, you know, needing to run to the car, panic, anxiety, basically a PTSD, what we would call PTSD moment. What happened in that was that there, the sounds, the smells triggered an emotional experience for them, right? It kind of unlocked a memory that was kept in this emotional part of the brain, the limbic system and the body. So I hope that makes sense. But then to bridge that to the EMDR and what the EMDR does is if in a PTSD event, we're only processing that event from the limbic system emotional response, we're not engaging our prefrontal cortex. So EMDR sort of works to use all parts of the brain alternatively, because it's a bilateral stimulation, to integrate holistically all parts of brain online, not just the emotional part, to integrate this memory, this traumatic memory. So while you're sitting in the therapist's office, the therapist is walking you through all parts of this memory with the EMDR tools turned on, engaging your entire brain to reprocess that memory which then in turn allows your brain to desensitize the emotional memory of that trauma. So the next time you're in a triggered event, you will feel it, you will remember it, but you won't necessarily have a panic attack or an anxiety attack or the mm -hmm. out of control emotional experience that might be completely debilitating to you or lead you to drink more or argue more or be hotter tempered or whatever some of these other resulting behaviors would be from an unprocessed trauma memory. It's a, it's, it's really, I mean, for me, it's very hard to unravel, but I mean, the more, the more work we've done together, the more I've started to, to understand it. But again, like even on this, even sitting here talking, I start to sort of pick apart pieces of my own history and wonder, is all that trauma informed? Is this bipolar informed? Is this, you know, like, are my, I'm just, I'm just working through it right now as I listen. Um, but one of the questions that I had, and I want to get back to that bipolar point, And I think, you know, just talking about what just happened in my life is, is probably a really uh, important thing to do. But before we do that, you know, you've worked with a lot of athletes um, because you live in there, you have lived in Boulder. And is there any, and, and a lot of our audience are athletes or very avid um, outdoor enthusiasts. Um, is there a unique set of symptoms or challenges that you notice from highly activated athletes or outdoors people um, or, or any sort of unique treatments that you recommend for those people? You know what I mean? Like, is there anything specific that you notice with people who are highly engaged in high-risk activity? You know, athletes are definitely a unique group. There is a real desire to feel. You know, you don't climb a mountain or throw yourself into some of these situations that athletes do take the risks you take push yourself to the limits you push yourself because you don't you don't want to feel all of that is actually very stimulating events for the body mm -hmm. and for the brain you are on and you need to be really crisp in your thinking you know this isn't like i'm gonna kind of check out and hang out here this is like there's a lot of systemic thinking there's a lot of mechanical thinking that goes on to needing to pull off like success in whatever the athlete is going to try to pull off. And there's a lot of prep that goes into it. You know, it is a very, your brain and your body are on. And so what I notice with athletes is that in terms of a successful approach, the body-based work is really, really effective because athletes can feel. They know that you can reference fear in an athlete. You can reference that feeling. Um, you can reference anxiety. You can reference um, pain. 
for pain. Sure. Yeah. Suffering. I mean, yeah. 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 And so, so, so that's something that I really actually love working with athletes because they know their body. They know their body so well. And the other piece that I think is important is that athletes, they are so used to being in that really stimulated space that sometimes they don't even necessarily realize that they live there. <laughs> and it is fun, really, to, to work with people to come into a space of, that's not so stimulating, that's maybe a little bit more in the, I don't, you know, in the parasympathetic response, one would say, you know, in the, in the rest and digest is the less formal term, the rest and digest place rather than this activated, like, like go place. So um, that is a hard thing for athletes to do, but I find it really, it, it's an interesting journey to take with them. It's, it seems like you're speaking a bit about balance, of course, because it is, it's a very addictive state. I mean, we, I mean, we've talked about this before and, and, and Corey, certainly you guys have talked about this before in, in regards to flow states with uh, this focus and presence that you addressing and uh, alluding to here with the sorts of activities we're referring to, whether it be ultra distance running or mountain climbing, it's really tempting to want to be in that space. And in some ways it's a nice escape from whatever else may be going on in your life. But I, I would imagine at some point with some of the individuals, like any of your clients or even like myself, I've, I've looked at what I do is sometimes a bit of a pathologic escape. Like I'm not really addressing what's bothering me at home or in my workplace. And I'm going on this distraction because it's a pleasant experience mm -hmm. and it feels like it's producing something. I'm doing something with my time. I'm getting to the top of the mountain and, and that may be true, but I may be leaving behind some unresolved issues at home. So how often do you see, I guess, engagement and the sort of activities that Corey and I do as, as a, mm -hmm. um, as an escape, not necessarily a solution. <laughs> I think it's, it's often an escape. And I think it's an important escape for many people. We all have an escape. So in that way, it's one to really be honored, like any of our escapes. I mean, even meditation or spiritual practice could be seen as an escape. And so I think it's an, it, that, that is a good point. And the other thing that I want to say, too, is that it is something, it, the addictive nature of it, I think, for athletes is that athletes are good at being athletes. So you have that success. You have that feeling of, I might not be able to be great in my relationship or parenting might be really, really hard for me or my nine to five might just be like the last thing in the world that I feel good at doing, but I'm really, really good at this. And so the outcome that it produces is a state of fulfillment. It's a state of purpose and it's a state of happiness. And that is very addicting and not always for all the wrong reasons, but reasons to be looked at if it is causing or taking away, like you said, if it's causing imbalance, then that is definitely something to be looked at. Just like we would look at workaholics or, you know, all the, the other kind of behaviors that we can engage with in an imbalanced way. Uh, I'm not saying we all have a shared pathology here, but I guess, are there <laughs> tips, are there tips on your insight that you see when you're in conversation with someone that the balance isn't quite there? Because uh, I mean, I love this group of people and there's a reason I affiliate with them and they're often very highly functioning, amazing people, but we all lose balance. And do you ever hear anything? Are there any insights or kind of red flags that you see waving when you're talking to somebody or like, mm, maybe a little too much on the ultra running right now or mountain climbing? Yeah, for sure. I, th I think if, it, if it's sort of, I'm doing a lot of this and what I, you know, this activity, I'm climbing this, or I'm traveling here to windsurf this water, or I'm, you know, I'm setting out to do this new thing. And I, I'll sit with that person and say, okay, great. And how, how are things feeling in your marriage? Yeah, well, it, you know, <laughs> and then that opens something up, right? Or how's it going? Um, did you ever circle back and talk to your kid about, you know, that last conflict you had? No, no, I couldn't really find the time for that. Or, you know, last time we were talking about just how behind you feel and the to-do list and paying your bills and staying on top of all the things that feel like they're slipping through the cracks. Yeah, no, I still haven't done that. <laughs> so those would be sort of to speak to red flags. Those would be the indicators that this athlete is experiencing an imbalance. And honestly, those, those other things that aren't getting tended to on an unconscious level or maybe conscious level are really not leaving them feeling great. 
but they are driving them to do more of their athletic endeavor because then they get to go do something that makes them feel better. So in that way, it can be a coping mechanism, not always bad again, but just something to hold awareness around. It's, It's really looking at what's getting neglected as the indicator of, you know, has this become pathological or, um, or maybe not pathological, but is this, you know, a coping mechanism in a way, if, if I'm hearing that right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, Corey, um, I wanted to just on the same thread of talking about conscious and unconscious and maybe to, to navigate back to where, where you wanted to go with this, Corey. Um, so much of your, um, your questions and your inquiry, Corey, are, are really quite informed because you've gone through this, this path of the work. And you have what I would call insight now, right? On um, what, I sure as shit hope happening. so. God. <laughs> uh, Otherwise, I want but, my money uh, back, Laurel. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Corey. Just you, let me know where to send the check. Yeah, yeah. And so much, so much of what we talked about, and there's some some great things to to, to dissect and kind of uh, talk about here, and especially in, in some of uh, the work that you, that you've brought up and this concept of uh, compassion inquiry, which I, I do think is so effective. I didn't put a name on that technique, but it's actually really quite effective in the ER setting too, when people are going through acute emotional crises, and it really helps identify that what someone is happening, what's happening in their life right now, isn't necessarily a character flaw right? It's not a character flaw. It's a consequence of perhaps culmination of events up till that time, some years ago, but some right in that time. And so with all that, Corey, back to after the avalanche, uh, which I would, I would say maybe a time where you had a little less insight to what you were feeling, what that, what that meant and where it was coming from to, I guess, this last trip. I'm really curious after the avalanche, how many years ago was that now? That was Uh, 10 years ago, 10 years ago. What were the things you were experiencing that you realized were a problem that led you on the path that you needed to get this insight and some help? And then with that information, how did you deal with what happened on Dalagiri differently, you think? So after, after the avalanche, what I started to notice was a heightened sense of sort of a, a spinning out where I felt constantly other and outside of, which I had always felt in my life, but now it's felt amplified and a, a sense of almost, if we're talking about the felt sense, what it felt like inside of me, it felt like electricity. It felt like a trapped current that was misfiring. It felt like constant, um, like I had always had too much coffee. And by virtue of that, I reached out to, you know, alcohol primarily to try to calm that. And the alcohol opened up pieces of me that made me feel good and and at home. And it made me feel um, like I belonged. And it also opened up pieces of me uh, that allowed me to engage in things like promiscuity and sex when I was married um, outside of the marriage to, and, and as a coping mechanism. And if you look back, uh, through, throughout history, that, that value deficit that I felt in my precognitive years and that grew, um, throughout my adolescent development, then sort of found its most basic home through, through what is referred to as sex and love addiction. And, and this is not to say that, sex and love addiction is oftentimes very misunderstood and people think it's you're addicted to sex. Well, that's actually not, that can be one component of it. But if you look at it from a value proposition, um, one of the most basic ways that people, humans feel valuable is through intimate relationship. And that can be manifested as sexuality or conflated with sexuality. Um, Sexuality in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean that it's intimate. And so alcohol allowed me to um, both feel calmer and engage in an activity because it drops inhibition, right? And, 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 and real cognitive decision-making and allowed me to then engage in activity like sex and love that made me feel valuable. I noticed all of these things, but when you're, when this is happening, oftentimes you're saying, well, we're rationalizing, we're, we're making excuses for it. And and that's what I really want to point out. 
there is no excuse for poor behavior because at the end of the day, I still made all those decisions. And there's no excuse. That's not saying that because I got caught in an avalanche or because I had a rough childhood, that it's okay to cheat or be an alcoholic asshole. That, that doesn't, that's not what we're saying here. However, understanding what happened and what transpired, we can start to view it through a different lens to get more information on how to unravel it. And then, you know, there's this whole other component of this, which is bipolar disorder. And what happened on Dalagiri is, is more in line with that. Now, there are certain things that have transpired over the past 10 years, namely the fact that I've tried to re-engage with a way of living that worked for me for a long time, i.e. being a photographer and being a mountain climber and being an athlete. And for a very long time, I think if I'm honest with myself, a lot of those activities weren't working for me anymore. You know, it was an old identity, an old personality that I was trying to hang on to because it worked, you know, it, it, it got me all the attention that I needed to fill up that cup, that value deficit and gave me um, sort of access to things that I'd never had access to. So I just kept going with it. And then, and this is where I want to bring Laurel back in this last trip. When I went to Dalagiri, I had an acute episode, bipolar episode. And, and, and I, I'd be so curious to hear how Laurel would actually describe that. Because it's easy for me to be like, and then I realized I didn't want to climb and I didn't want to do this anymore. And I just left. Well, that's That's true. And what else happened, Laurel? <laughs> well, what else happened is that there's an aspect of us that can only be ignored for so long. And it will find a way to communicate to us what is going on. So with bipolar, you know, you're, do, you're doing what? You're going between highs and lows, right? So if we're high too long, what's the natural, the, the pendulum is going to swing, right, to the mm -hmm. other one. So if we're just talking about this in terms of what happened, your psyche, your, your biology could not withstand what you were ignoring anymore. And it had to sort of deliver it in a very acute way. And for your bipolar diagnosis, this is often for people with bipolar, you know, they can only withstand certain states of being for so long. It, it is a desperate attempt on the part of our psychology to communicate that something has to change. Something's not working. It's biological feedback that is responding to deep psychology, in mm -hmm. essence. Yeah. And the, the bipolar disorder is, a, it is sort of a, it's a pathology that's literally trying to communicate. I mean, it, it's trying to serve a function. It's trying to say, hey. Mm -hmm. clearly things aren't working here. Help, help me out. <laughs> Listen, something's not like, like take care of me. And it's also chemical. I mean, it does, it's, this is about brain chemistry too. So the way that this presented for me was, you know, I had what's called a mixed episode. So I was both suicidal and very heightened the way this presents in my, you know, my heightened states are not these wild spending sprees and I'm the life of the party. I'm irritable. I'm angry. I'm not sleeping well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just spinning at a very high, but then at the same time I can be, I can, I can, I can want to die. That's confusing. How does that, like, how do we, how do I, how does somebody who's experiencing that sort of reconcile that or do they, is it just about finding help? Well, it's very hard, and I think it can often be dangerous, really, to try to reconcile that on your own. I, I do think that if you are finding that you're sort of, you know, rapid cycling or having mixed these these severe kind of highs and lows and these really mixed moments, that that is really time to reach out and ask for some help and share what's what's happening. But I mean, to your point, there's absolutely brain brain chemistry that's going on here. And that's why it is so important to reach out. It isn't something that can necessarily just be talked through, you know, with a good friend or your partner, there does need to be a certain level of professional holding and insight and, and treatment that's brought in there. I think this is the, this leads us to a good question, and we, and I know we're running out of time. And it's funny because I, I again I feel like we could do another hour here, or maybe another week, honestly, because there's just so much to unpack. But it, to your point, it, you know, this isn't necessarily something that people can resolve themselves, and, and a lot of this isn't trauma, neurological or or you know brain chemistry disorders like bipolar and depression, a lot of this needs help. And I think it's very difficult for people who, who are not versed in this 
to find the language that they need in order to describe what's happening within themselves. So I guess where I want to leave this and ask is how, how can people best explain to others what's going on with them in an effective way that invites help and, and hopefully a path towards healing, especially, you know, when work or, or life is involved, and especially when there's so many misconceptions about mental health in general, and there's a stigma around it. Like what, how do we find this language when we're not in this process already? It's a question with a little bit of a tricky answer. You know, I, I think that what I want to say is trust your gut. You know if something is off. You know if you're feeling, if things all of a sudden are making you feel different, feel more intense, feel sadder, feel happier, feel more scared. You know if if what if something or someone is causing you to feel differently than it previously did. And so in, so just trust your gut and trust that um, that's good enough. And, and I think it is often hard to find the language and it's hard to find people to share it with because mental health is completely still very stigmatized, you know, and, and I hear it every day. I don't want people to see that I'm broken. I mean, I, I, I still hear it. You know, and and I still at, at where we are in 2021 is like wow, that's a that is alive and well that notion that I'm broken. So I think you know part of what I want to say when you asked the question, Corey, was to just tell to remind people that you could go share something that's going on with you, and somebody gives a response, and that doesn't feel good to you. That don't disregard what you're feeling just because you didn't get from somebody what you were hoping to get. Call somebody else, reach out to a mental health line. You know, just keep honoring that something doesn't feel completely the way it used to, and that that in and of itself is enough reason to get some support. Terry, first of all, I want to just with the last few minutes, is there anything that you're curious about? Is there anything that you want to ask? And then I also just want to offer Laurel. Any last thoughts um, before we have to get off and hopefully we get to do a second session? Yeah, thanks, Corey. I, I had a follow-up because, Corey, your, your question came from the space of um, I'm feeling something is off. What about if, if I'm a friend or someone who wants to help who's recognizing a pattern of, of abnormal or what seems to be maladaptive behavior in my climbing partner, my partner at home, someone who I trail run with? That might be an approach that's that informed by, uh, I guess, this concept of compassion inquiry that mm-hmm. opens the space up so that person's not stuck in that narrative that I'm damaged goods or this is a character flaw and makes them want to be open and transparent about what's happening to them. Yeah. Okay. So some languaging around that. Um, yeah. You notice a friend or your partner or um, a coworker. You know, I think finding a moment that feels, I can't stress this word enough, safe so that whomever you are bringing this up with isn't in a kind of a hypervigilant state. They're not sort of in a, in an on guard place and they won't feel threatened by what you're bringing up. Because often when people bring things to us, we, we can go with the defense, especially if it's sort of something striking a chord of truth. So in line with it, just a compassionate presence, you know, I would just some practical things. I would make sure that you're regulated in your breathing that you're sitting down or you know out out for a walk um somewhere that feels neutral and you just your voice is very calm and you just say something along the lines of you know you mean so much to me and um we know each other really really well and i'm just noticing some things would it be all right if i just shared with you what i'm noticing asking permission is so important and then you say what you're noticing, you know, if it's an, if it's an eating disorder thing, you just say, you know, you've, I'm just noticing you look really thin. Are you okay? You know, I'm not saying you're not eating, but I'm just saying you look thin. And I just want to know if you're all right, you know, or you seem sad or you seem edgy. Could totally be me. Maybe I'm sad and edgy. I don't know. But um, I just want to check in because you mean it. You mean a lot to me. And I, I hope that me saying this is okay with you. Please let me know if it wasn't. So it's just it's just creating it's creating a compassionate space to 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 listen and something I've talked about a lot, which is just saying, tell me everything. You know, and, and maybe also providing people with a space to talk before you give feedback and then asking to give feedback when when the time comes. Mm-hmm. Um Laurel, I just want to thank you. I, I mean, thank you for all the work that we've done, which obviously we didn't get into today, but too deeply. But I 
Um, personally, I want to thank you. And I really want to thank you for being here with this audience too. And I hope that I really hope that this has been helpful and informative for people. And, um, we're going to provide some show notes at the end, um, and just for people to dive in if they need resources. And I hope that we can have you back on to maybe answer some questions too. So, uh, we'll, we'll try and get some questions from the audience and then we can have that conversation at some point, but Thank you for taking the time today. It's just been such a pleasure and I, I'm so grateful for everything. So thank you. Thanks, Laurel. Yeah, thanks so Thank much. you. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, I'll see you in therapy next week. No, <laughs> the check's in the mail. All right, Cor. <laughs> <laughs> you, mean, you mean your refunds? I'm refunding yeah, you. <laughs> my refund's in the mail. Yeah. Your refund check is on the way. Don't worry. All right, All right. great. All right. <laughs> thank you, guys. Yeah, okay. Take care. All see right. You. Bye. So that was uh, Laurel Soleil, who's uh, been my therapist for almost a decade now. And, and um, hopefully that was helpful for everybody just discovering and, and unraveling, you know, what trauma looks like and talking about how we can be more proactive with our friends and, and loved ones who might be experiencing mental health and also mental health struggles and also finding the language for, um, for ourselves, you know, this whole month, Mental Health Mondays, uh, my experience on Dalagiri has blown this open for me in a way. And, and the season has really been about finding our voice in, in activism and the things we were passionate about. And I've worked in conservation and I've made statements about racial equity and, you know, inclusion. And what I've discovered is that what I'm most passionate about and, and what I can speak to most honestly through my own experience is mental health. And that's why I, as one of the, the founders of the podcast and one of the, you know, co-hosts, I felt it was so important to bring somebody on that had some language that I don't. And Terry, I think, you know, you made some really good inquiry into, um, into what this all looks like. And I'm just curious if you have any, if you have any more questions for me that you want to talk about before we sign off today. Uh, yeah, thanks, Corey. And thanks so much to you for just your transparency on this, this issue, because uh, it is hidden under the surface. Uh, for so many people out there, it's a difficult topic to to talk about, and I admire you for for having the courage to do so. And I think perhaps that is that is part of the path for you um, to move through this, is to share in hopes of informing and improving the lives of others. I, I, I'm curious, do you feel that in some ways that being in this <laughs> this crucible, this fight, so to speak, and 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 facing your struggles over the last decades? Has that oriented you more towards service? I mean, realizing that you're you're not alone in this, not only in your mental health, but just realizing the, the station of people all over the world with, with the stress and uh, adversity they're dealing with. I mean, do you think it's informed your path to service, having to come to grips with this? Well, I mean, first of all, one of the things that I, I think I want to say is that I never wanted to be the poster boy for brokenness in the outdoor community. <laughs> And, and certainly moving beyond the outdoor community in, in the ways that my life has, I never wanted to be the poster boy for brokenness anywhere. However, I'm willing, and I'm not just willing, I feel it's as a responsibility of mine to speak openly about this. And in essence, I'm willing to throw myself on that pyre and burn a little bit publicly in order to bring this to the forefront of people's conversation. And that, you know, some people won't like me for it. And some people think that we just shouldn't talk about these things openly and that, you know, we should keep our dirty laundry at home. And I'm not, I'm not advocating that we all share as openly as I do. In fact, I don't think that's wise. Um, I'm in a unique position that allows me to share um, the way I, in the way that I do, uh, largely because of the amount of work that I've done and, and the public sort of, um, profile that I've, that I have, I, like I said, I feel it's like a responsibility. So in that, in that spirit, absolutely. This experience has oriented me more towards service. This is a way that I actually can be of greater service is by through talking about the experience that I have openly and honestly, 
I invite other people to speak openly and honestly about their own experiences. And it doesn't have to be publicly. It can be, and, and it largely shouldn't be, um, but they can talk about it within their family structure, with their friends, and start to relieve some of the pressure of living in isolation with mental health struggles. Because there's, I can honestly say there's nothing more isolating than feeling as though you're broken and not having a way to talk about it. Yeah. But the other thing I want to say there is that you're not broken. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the misconception. This idea of brokenness and mental health go hand in hand. Well, are you broken if you have celiac? You know, are you broken if you have a hyperthyroid? Are you broken? No, you, you're not broken. Absolutely. That's, yeah. that's not a broken thing. That's just the way your body functions. And because this is a, an issue of the mind, we tend to think that people are crazy or they're broke. That's just, we have to change that language. And that's what this is all about for me. Yeah. And, and you alluded to this before, Corey, but uh, I think you may have at one point been trapped in a space that many people are where they're stuck in the narrative of their brokenness, like something's wrong with me. And therefore it's embarrassing to talk about it. It's embarrassing mm -hmm. to share is there any passing, I guess, final advice to someone who may be listening out there who thinks they're broken, stuck in this space from your experience of, of how to bridge that gap to kind of come out of the dark spaces and, and be transparent to get the help that they need? Well, first, I mean, it goes back to the last answer. Let's just examine what brokenness means. You know, brokenness is something that insinuates that, that, that you are beyond repair. Um, and that's just not true. We have to flip this narrative. We have to, we have to work hard on the language that we use around it. Um, that's why we call it mental health or mental wellness, um, not mental illness. Remember these things are, these things don't make us sick. They are things that we can live alongside and live very well with. And in fact can be great strengths. Um, so starting to understand yourself and your struggles as potentially if you're in a struggling moment, you know, this is the downside to a tremendous amount of upsides to this, um, compassionate inquiry and inquiry into self makes us better people. Introspection helps us be more compa compassionate in general. Um, it helps us understand the motives of others in our lives so that we can actually show up for them in different ways, better ways, more holistic ways. And I think that uh, as, as, as we are in these moments, um, changing the language around it and starting to see ourselves as unbroken uh, with challenges is really important. So there's one thing, you know, like shift your language around yourself. Negative self-talk is not helpful and it keeps us down. The other thing is Laurel mentioned something and it seems so rudimentary. It seems so, so simple, but pay attention to how you feel, like honestly, how you feel. And once you can identify that, honestly, then you're not performing for anybody. Just honestly, how do you feel? And if you're identifying that you feel heightened, if you feel upset, if you feel depressed, if you're thinking about suicide, if that, you know, all these things, that is your, that's your greatest roadmap because once you've identified that and you can speak about it honestly, then you can start to speak about it honestly to others. And that's the biggest thing is if you can't be honest with yourself about what's happening, just brass tacks, honest, how can you ever be expected to be honest with others? And how can you ever receive the help that you desperately deserve, not need? Let's stop thinking you need help. Fuck that. That is such a, that's such a negative way to, no, you deserve help. You deserve help getting through this because you're a valuable, important human who is contributing to society and the world in effective and meaningful ways. So, so shifting, I think that's, you know, those are, those are two things that I could really point to. It comes down to honesty with yourself. Um, and it also comes down to a reframe that this is not brokenness. Um, this is life and, and your life is very worth living in, and we want you here. At least I know I do. Thanks so much. You've been such an effective messenger in this space. And really it is about normalizing this conversation and having it more and more. And so, um, thanks so much for your service, uh, this month and all your work with mental health Mondays. Um, hopefully this was a good compliment to your efforts in that regard. And 
Thanks so much again to Laurel and her time. Thanks so much to this platform, to you know our nonprofit platform, the Adventure Activists, and to Rome, to really doing service in this space and addressing not only Mental Health Awareness Month, but uh, the UN SDG goal number three with health and well-being, which we want for everyone on this planet. Yeah. So um, wonderful insights, uh, Corey. Thanks so much again for your time, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, happy belated birthday to you. Thank you. Yeah, 40. <laughs> 40 and getting old. Um, and I just want to say thanks to Rome for partnering on Mental Health Mondays for the for the month of May. It's been a great partnership. And um, if you guys have not uh, checked those out, they all live on my IGTV um, channel. So just at Corey Richards. Uh, if you don't follow me, that's fine. It's just that there's that's where all the information is. And again, Mental Health Mondays is is really just about talking about these things from the perspective of somebody who's experienced them rather than a clinical perspective and trying to give insights into things that have really been impactful and meaningful for me. And, uh, you know, we cover all the topics and, and, and I really want to encourage people to ask big digging questions, because like I said, if I can lay on this, this pyre, I'm, I'm down to do it. Um, and, and the more that people engage, uh, the better the conversation gets. So, Thank you guys for everything. Thanks for having me again on the podcast. Um, really, really appreciate it. If you liked today's episode, you can help us out by subscribing and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or any place that you get your podcasts. You can find us on social media at Rome and at The Adventure Activists. You can find me on Instagram at, at CJ Rome and Terry is at C Terry Go. That's S E E. And Corey is at Corey Richards. For resources and ways to get involved, go to romemedia.com for this episode's show notes and all the other stuff. And special thanks to our producer, Healy Cruz. This episode of Rum From Home is brought to you by Adventure Activists. Adventure Activists is a nonprofit platform which produces unique stories and educational content to promote the charitable mission of the Sustainable Development Goals. They call on experts to help with storytelling around health, education, peace, justice, conservation, and climate. And that's what we're all about here on the podcast Rum From Home. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Rome Academy. Rome Academy is Rome's educational platform where you can connect with the greatest icons, adventurers, photographers, and filmmakers of our day. And they will teach you subjects, uh, everything from skiing and snowboarding to surfing, photography, adventure storytelling, how to achieve your dreams, fitness. It's all on there, sort of the masterclass of the outdoors, if you will. So check that out if you enjoy this podcast. That's how we stay in business is our membership with the Rome Academy. You can find us at romemedia.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>